0: So, Kevin Barker, a simple question for you as we start out another edition of Blair and Barker.
1: Is there anybody out there
0: who can save Major League Baseball from
1: itself? Well, that's a great question. I- Look, I'm I'm an optimistic. First and foremost, I I think this has everything to do with one side wants this, the other side wants something totally different. You got to meet in the middle. The quicker they meet in the middle, I think something will be done. And I think they know that, you know, because of social media now, and you know, social media is real quick about blaming somebody, and one side's getting blamed. I do think that this will, this will be taken care of sooner than later and and let's be optimistic let's think positive jeff i'm the one that's been thinking positive lately i'm the one that didn't think we were going to be here i thought we were going to have
0: an agreement i thought we'd be i thought we'd be getting ready i swear to god kevin like i'm a cynic but when i heard all that good news coming out all that good news coming out of roger dean stadium i'm thinking okay we're going to be talking about Jose Ramirez and and Freddie Freeman and Carlos Correa not all coming to the Blue Jays of course but we were going to be talking about them today we're we're going to be talking about trades and and free agency and you know here we are players and owners met briefly today this is Thursday in New York City uh, less than forty eight hours after Commissioner Rob manford you all know this by now announced the cancellation of the first two series of the twenty twenty two regular season now major leaguers remain locked out of spring training sites. And the tone of negotiations have turned bitter in a very public manner. There are some areas of philosophical agreement, but there's a lot of hard, difficult math to do. And, Kevin, I think I'm safe in saying that there's nothing we hate more than math. There's a lot of real hard math that needs to get done before this thing gets wrestled to the ground. Our next guest has covered baseball for a long time and has done so with an impossibly high level of professionalism and a nice turn of phrase. He has retired now from the New York Post after covering Tuesday's implosion of negotiations, which is either brilliant timing or a cruel joke, depending on your point of view. Ken Davidoff of the New York... Damn it, I almost did it there. Ken Davidoff joins us on Blair and Barker. Uh, We'll get to the lockout in a minute, but first, Ken, you're uh, stepping away from the New York Post after a long career as a baseball writer and columnist, and... We heard Rob Manfred's remarks. We saw the remarks from the Players Association as well. Um, Because of proximity, you've probably had more dealings with the commissioner's office and the Players Association than most of us. So I'm just going to ask you, what do you think of Rob Manfred? What do you think of the Players Association group? And are you surprised we're here?
2: I'm going to answer your last question first, Jeff. No, I'm not surprised. We've seen this coming for nearly five years. And I think both sides are to blame to to uh, answer your your first two questions. Uh, I think Rob Manfred and his office are clearly more to blame than the players. Uh, I think when you declare a lockout on December 2nd and don't pick up the phone until January 12th to, to set up a January 13th meeting, that's on you. Uh, so I do think Rob Manfred has done a, a very poor job as commissioner. I think he gets worse every day. Uh, I think he's just not a leader, not an ambassador for the game. And his one strength was as a labor lawyer, but uh, that, that obviously has fizzled now. On the other side, Tony Clark uh, has not done a good job either. I think uh, when you look at this whole, this whole situation, is caused by the previous collective bargaining agreement, 2016, when the players did such a bad job on that, within about 24 hours, they knew that they had gotten their heads beat in. And rather than reflect on what they did wrong, they immediately just pointed at the owners and vowed revenge. So they've been on this warpath for a long time. And uh, I thought only recently did their asks get uh, reasonable. And then and then the owners followed a couple of days after that.
0: you surprised that... Uh... That Rob Manfred has been this ineffective because they, you know, look, I, I've, I mean, I've had dealings with Rob in the past, going back to when he first came to the the commissioner's office. I've had a pretty good relationship with him. I think. I mean, I certainly wouldn't say we were close, or I certainly wouldn't call him a source, but I've had a pretty good relationship. And Ken, I honestly thought that he was probably going to be able to get a deal done out of this. Is how, how much of this is is. Kind of a personal animosity between Rob Manfred and the players, or do you think maybe we're overlooking something going on within Rob Manfred's ownership group that that, that maybe we we haven't paid enough attention to the inner workings of that group,
2: Jeff? I think uh, both are, are correct. I, I think uh, I think the personal animosity is real and is spectacular, and I think uh, you know, I, I think it's a real factor here. And, uh, you know, Rob mentioned recently uh, back at the owner's meetings that he had a very good working relationship with the late Michael Wiener, who led the union uh, uh, until his passing in 2013. And uh, even under the the fear leadership, I know you you Canadians know fear well now uh, from his hockey player leadership. uh, He was Michael was number two or number three under Don Fear. Uh, so he did a great job. And then unfortunately, he passed away at the very young age of 51, due to brain cancer. And uh, yeah, Rob has struggled to get along with, with Tony and Tony's deputy since 2018, Bruce Meyer. Uh, and then the other component, as you nailed, Jeff, is, uh, is the, the Hawk owners uh, within uh, Major League Baseball. Those owners, they'll be more than happy to tank this season if it meant destroying this union.
1: Ken, how do, you, how do you think that uh, the players get past the distrust for Rob Manfred?
2: Uh, that's a great question, Kevin. Yeah, excellent question. And I'm, I, my best answer is just to get enough of what they want, uh, get enough of what they want, and then somehow try to bridge this, this divide. I mean, I, you know, if you look at these proposals uh, where they stood on, when they broke up on Tuesday, they're really not that far apart. You know, they they've made up a lot of ground in a relatively short amount of time so now the question is can they just pick it up and keep going and get something done this month or are the hawks on both sides going to continue to be disruptors and, and are we going to have real chaos
1: uh you mentioned the union uh, in your opinion how strong do you think the union is right now
2: i think it's very well i, I will see it, there's a lot of solidarity i will say that a lot of strength a lot of solidarity i mean the rod Manfred's greatest strength as commissioner is as a mobilizing force for the union uh because is just such an easy uh deserving target uh of their contempt you know their disdain um and but i do think that the leadership itself is not very strong you know they they went into this thing vowing big changes in the constituency they talked about dropping free agency from six years eligibility to five they talked about Dropping elig- uh, arbitration eligibility from mostly three years to all two, and now those two uh, proposals are completely off the table. Uh,
0: there does, as you mentioned, seem to be some sort of I would call it philosophical agreement in some areas. You know, the owners are at least entertaining the idea of uh, of the of the uh, of of raising the minimum. You know, the pre-arbitration bonus pool. At least the owners were entertaining that. There has been some move unexpanded playoffs, it appears as if, again, this is all before the breakdown, the owners were going along with or ready to go along with the idea of two playoff teams or 12 playoff teams instead of 14. Is there enough of an avenue there, Ken, that you think once you you, you sit down and do the hard math about the CBT and figure out what you need to do to keep the smaller market teams happy, that there may be an avenue for an agreement there?
2: Yeah, I do, Jeff. Yeah. As, as I said, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think every every area is, is financial, not philosophical, especially now that MLB has signed off on the 12-team the playoff as opposed to the to the 14. Uh, and even when you look at the CBT, so uh, MLB's 2020 proposal is 200 – I'm sorry, 2020 – 2022 proposal – was 220 million. That's where my brain was, and then uh, the player was 238. You can, that's a divide. You can, you can bridge. And then at the end of the deal, I think it's 230 uh, for uh, 2026 for the owners, and then 263 for the players. So that's that's bigger, but I still think that can be bridged.
0: I mean, I was intrigued to to see Hal Steinbrenner play a, uh, a visible visible role in these negotiations. Um, where do you think he stands on the CBT? Because there has been some suggestion—I don't know how accurate it is—but there has been some suggestions in some in in some quarters that Hal Steinbrenner does not want to see the CBT go up. Um, and, and you know, as thinking that he owns the Yankees, that quite frankly, surprises me because I would I would think that the Yankees would would be a team that would, would be okay with that. And I, I'm wondering, Ken, if uh, maybe this is a, me guilty of being a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but I wonder if Hal Steinbrenner doesn't look across and see Steve Cohen and all that money and all that motivation, and if he isn't a little concerned about where the Yankees are going to be going forward compared to the Mets.
2: I like that conspiracy there. That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't given that much thought. Uh, but I, I think I think Hal Steinbrenner wants the, the CPT to go up. You know, the same reason that Steve Hall wants it to go up and the Red Sox and the Dodgers. And, and I don't think the Jays are too far away from that, right? I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they've obviously uh, increased their spending considerably the last couple of years. So, uh, no, bottom line is Hal Steinbrenner uh, is one of the owners most guilty of viewing that. CBT threshold as a, as a hard cap. Uh, he's stayed under it two of the last uh, four seasons. So I think if it goes up, uh, he will he will go up.
1: Uh, m- many of the players on the executive committee are represented by Scott Boris, Marcus Simeon, Max Scherzer, <laughs> just to name a couple. How much influence do you think Boris had in all this?
2: Well, look i don't think it's machiavellian kevin i don't think he's pulling the strings behind the scene you know this isn't uh this is the movie dave with kevin klein where frank langella plays the, the chief of staff you know, <laughs> c- secretly running the government but they're you know, i mean you just you just said it i mean a lot of his players are are on the executive subcommittee gary cole is also part of that subcommittee and we all know how scott boris views this situation and Most of his players, and certainly, well, I mean, Cole and Scherzer are a long-time Boris guy, Semi just switched over recently, but most of Scott's clients are uh, philosophically aligned with him. So when you have those uh, powerful voices in the room, and even within that committee, I mean, Garrett Cole and Max Scherzer are two of the best and best-paid pitchers in the game, that
0: carries a lot of weight. Broader baseball question here, Ken, before we let you run, Uh, I think we can all agree that analytics is will continue to drive more and more personnel decisions i also think analytics might be the worst thing to happen to players in the past 50 (laughs) years because it it frankly it 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 removes the emotion from decision making how do the players prevent and i'm going to borrow a phrase from tony clark here the commoditizing of players
2: that's a good question jeff and i i do you think that's been overstated a little i mean you know have there been some front offices that have completely ignored the human element there have and those front offices by and large have failed you I know mean, even jeff lunow who probably will never get a job in baseball again and uh has been uh kind of become the personification of analytics i mean he brought in brian mccann and carlos Beltran as much for their clubhouse presence hmm. as anything they were doing on the field and of course uh, Mr. Belstron wound up in a whole keep of trouble uh, for uh, you know for the sign stealing there. So, you know, look look at your guys. I mean, you know, Mark Sapiro and, and Ross Atkins, who, who played the game, obviously. I mean they're there as uh, on on guard. No. What is, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, the you know, they're they're as much the head of the curve as anyone when it comes to analytics, but I know they're both into into uh, what kind of guy is this person, and and you know how will he fit into the clubhouse? I know that matters to them too. And you know, look at look at Charlie Montoya. He's, that's a huge part of Charlie's strength is is people skills. So I think that gets a little overplayed, uh, you know, by by Tony for one.
1: Ken, I don't want to ask you about your, your gut feeling on when this thing, they'd be playing baseball again, but because you were closer than we are, I want you to give us an educated guess. Uh, is April 15th a, a better educated guess, or would you see closer to May 1st?
2: That's for the season to start, Kevin, or for when Absolutely. settle this thing?
1: Absolutely. Uh, when, when the season uh, starts.
2: I am on record as uh, St. Patrick's Day settlement, March 17th, which would basically leave the opening day of about April 20th.
1: Hmm.
0: Ken, listen, uh, you know how much I valued your friendship and your work, and uh, we uh, both of us really hope the best for you in the future. I look forward to whatever's next. I'm sure it's only going to be better, and thanks so much for joining us, and be well, my friend.
2: You too, guys. a pleasure to come on, and, and Kevin, nice to meet you. Jeff will continue to stay in touch, and uh, all the
0: best you guys.
1: Enjoy Thank your sure. retirement. Thank you.
0: Don't make it too long, though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks ken
0: see you later
2: hey thanks guys take care
0: that was ken david off and it's going to be hard for me to say his name without adding of the new york post at the end of it he's one of our best and my guess is he ain't going away and i don't want any of you to go away either because when we come back the one and only pat Hentkin. that's right the one and only pat Hankin joins us Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your favorite pods. This is Blair and Barker, The Podcast. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best thing about baseball, Kevin Barker, is the way so many of its best players are its best people. The way so many talented and gifted individuals, elite athletes, are willing to give their time to help us understand better the game we love to talk about and, in your case, play. And, well, our next guest is very much one of the best ever on all levels. 131 wins, a Cy Young Award, a World Series ring— 107 of those wins, and that World Series and Cy Young Award, by the way, came with the Toronto Blue Jays. Kevin Barker, Pat Henken. Uh You want to talk about a professional. You want to talk about a player's player. That that describes Pat Henkin to a T.
1: Absolutely. You know, if you could argue that if you needed one win – Pat Hinkin is the guy you'd give the ball to. At least I I would seriously think about because just the bulldog mentality. It's me against you. There's not a hitter that you're afraid of. He's going to come after you with his best kind of stuff. Uh, It's Pat Hinkin. Every conversation I've ever had with Pat, I walked away from it going, man, I actually learned something. And, Jeff, Mm -hmm. you know, I pride myself on knowing a lot about baseball. And when I don't know something, I'm going to walk up and ask a guy. And, yeah, it's a privilege, it's always been a privilege for me to, to have conversations with Pat about just everything that goes on about baseball, what it takes to be a baseball player, the life of baseball, what it takes about the, to be a really good pitcher. Uh, Pat's been a good friend, and he's also been a, a really good pitcher, obviously. Pat Henkin
0: was there for the glory days of the Blue Jays, and also the winding down of those championship years. And we're extremely pleased that he joins us on Blair and Barker. Pat, always good to speak to you. We trust you're doing well. I wanted to look back at 94, and 95, but, uh, but first just kind of give us your read from a distance as to what we've seen these past few months. Are you surprised that we are where we are right now with the lockout?
3: You know, I think everybody is, you know, you start and you, you wonder like, how can there be such a silent communication barrier between the two? You know, you were thinking to yourself, how can they not be talking right now all the way up until the deadline? And then you hear that last gush of, you know, the sides are going to meet for nine hours over at that Roger Dean stadium. And you kind of get optimistic. You're thinking, okay, cool. Something's going to happen. And then boom, first season's canceled. Yeah, it's disappointing. Trust me. I'm a big baseball fan, as you guys know. And it's it's a bummer.
0: Now, when, uh, when the strike hit in 94, you guys were, I think you were 55 and 60 or like 16 games out coming off back-to-back World Series. I, I know that Paul Beast, and I know you as well, you've always kind of said that you think that maybe Dwayne Ward's, the, the biceps and, and arm injuries he had, kind of signaled the beginning of the end for those teams. But it also seemed as if the strike just increased the spiral. What, Pat, what was it like to be with the Jays in 1994 you know, after the strike was over? You guys are coming back. Uh, you had the back-to-back World Series, as I said, before 94. What was the feeling like when you finally got into camp?
3: It was weird, you know, we all got down to spring training normal time mid-February, early February, heck, most of us moved down here at that point, you know, we were in the big leagues and established and just trying to get a head start in spring training thrown in January. We ended up having to go to like high school fields because the complex was shut down for us guys on the 40 man and I remember going and playing catch with Stottlemyre and Wells and I think Jimmy Key might have been there and all the guys that stayed down here. It was a bummer. I mean, we were just so anxious and wanting to go out there and play and I hope the fans realize that the players and the owners, they want to get something done. They want to start playing. I know the players do for sure. And I know the owners do too. So hopefully they'll get something settled. But 95, it was hard. It was frustrating. But we just had to suck it up and wait. And, and, uh, you know, hopefully good things will happen.
1: Uh, so the baseball players went on strike, obviously in, in August of 1994. They didn't return until April of 1995. Uh, how did you stay in shape, and and how did you how how did it impact your approach in spring training once it started again? As you know, that team finished 56 and, and 88, and. And you gave up a league high, high in hits. I hate to laugh, but I know how good you were and, and you know, how hard that must have yeah. been. Uh, c- could you blame your performance on, on the mixed-up nature of things just because of one year, of course? Uh, obviously, the next year you won the Cy Young Award.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I look at my bubblegum current on those years, and, you know, 93, 94 were good. 96 and seven were good. There was a year of 95 you talked about it. You know, there was the fact that we did end the season in August We struck and mid August thinking there's no way they'll cancel the world series. And of course they did, as we all know, coming back to spring training, we touched on it earlier. And then I, I, don't know, just got off to a late start never did really get in a good role and didn't have a really good solid year. And I remember coming, I don't want to blame it on the fact that we were, we struck the year before. I just think I had a bad year. And then I came back in 96. And I remember thinking, you know, just got to get back to the basics and, and try to focus on, on, you know, getting back to just doing the basic things it takes to be a good major league pitcher. Um, 95 was a tough year. There's no question about it. I look back on it. I, I, uh, I did that. My daughter was born. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. That's the first time my oldest daughter was born. It's coincidental, but maybe had something to do with it too. Uh,
1: how important is spring training to pitchers these days? How much time would you need after this layoff to get ready for a season?
3: I think three weeks or a month, max. But, I mean, again, starting pitchers aren't really geared to go the 6 or 7, 100, 10, 120 pitch limit when they leave spring training. I know with COVID, we talked about it, how guys, you know, they're getting to that 50, 60, 75 pitch limit, and they're ready to start the season. I think the way they monitor pitching staffs and manipulate the rosters up and down, I think that you have a chance to leave spring training in three weeks, four weeks max, and 65, 75 pitch limit, and you're ready to roll.
0: That You know, the, uh, this game's in so much flux right now at the minor league and development level. Between the pandemic, you've had cuts to the minor leagues. Uh, things seem to be back to normal, I guess, at the high school and college level. But I'm wondering how much concern you have right now for where the game, especially pitching, is.
3: Yeah, you know, it's funny— um... It's just changed a lot. I mean, I can see why you look at stats and you go, why would you have a tired starting pitcher go through the lineup a third time when you have these fresh guys that are in the bullpen that are ready to roar? It's just hard to to monitor a 162-game schedule with a 12- or 15-man pitching staff and do it that way. You're going to have to go to a 40-, 45-man pitching staff where you're going to have to have a ton of optional guys you can send back and forth. Um, to free up your bullpen and, and have fresh arms out there, even with 12-man staff. It's just changed a lot. I mean, heck, I remember when I was starting pitcher. I mean, it was your job, man. You had to go. You were going 110 pitches, I mean, whether it was three innings or nine. You know, and it was just because we knew the day before the bullpen was, was hurting. Um, and that's why when you mentioned Dwayne Ward, what a valuable asset that is back in that era when you had a guy that was real durable like a Quantrill or a Plesak or a Dwayne Ward or any one of those great relievers. There's lots of them. But there's a, that's a big value. So the game's really changed. I mean, the starting pitcher that can go six, seven innings and give you 200 innings, is there as much value for that guy as there was 15 years ago? I don't know. I have to look at the stats to answer that.
1: Uh, the, minor leaguer, the, the minor leaguers are working with the big league staff now. How big of a deal is that for those guys?
3: It's really cool. I think that's a very cool thing. Um, actually, I'm down in Florida right here right now, and I knew the minor leagues were going on like it was normal as usual. And I was thinking to myself, some of the big league coaches are probably over there. What a great impact they could have on them. I know, like, when I broke in, it was different. We had the minor league complex separate from the major leagues, but it was very prestigious to get over to the major leagues. Not <laughs> yeah. so much to be around the coaches, but the players, too.
0: Pat, when you were in that situation, and you talked about that, the minor leagues are in on one side, the major leagues are another. You were aware, obviously, when the big league staff was watching you, right? Like, what is your mindset? Maybe I don't know. Maybe that first time you're you're pitching in a you're pitching in a game in front of the big league staff, or they they're watching you throw a bullpen. Like, guys are aware of who's watching them, aren't they?
3: You're darn right, they are. Especially at that impressionable age when you're in the minor leagues, you're aware of everybody watching. Uh, and uh, I remember a quick story when I was in instructional ball. This is probably '87 or '88. Uh, Jimmy was a manager, Jimmy Williams, so maybe 89. And uh, I did a play out in the field, a PFP play, where I got the ball, and I kind of – all in one motion, I kind of scooped it up and flipped it over there and got the guy on the third baseline. And as I ran by, Mel and Bobby made me redo it because I didn't have my footwork right. And Jimmy pulled me aside after we ran and changed stations. He said, hey, son, you can make that play for me in Toronto. I said, all right, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> not. No, so it, it's just like you don't realize what an impact you could have as a big league coach. It's something I don't remember. I, I I remember like it was yesterday. Jimmy, of course, probably doesn't, doesn't even remember saying it. He probably told the 50 kids that day that. But I remember it. So to answer your question, you damn right. The big league coach, you make a big impact. Heck yeah.
0: So what would you say to a young a young major league pitcher? I'm just going to pick a guy. Let's say Alec Minowin. But But nobody in particular. What would you say to that young major league pitcher right now who is waiting for the lockout to be over, who's probably you know, pitching, working out with some teammates or trying to stay in shape, but hasn't been through this before. What would you say to that guy? What advice would you give him?
3: I would say that he's already a very polished guy. I've seen him pitch. He's pretty damn good. You know, so I think he's already good at self-coaching. I think the biggest thing is becoming a great practice player at this time of your career. Right now, you have no way of getting that adrenaline rush, that, that pumping, that feeling. So you have to be able to fake yourself out and do those things on the side, in the bullpen, in front of yourself, challenging yourself, get your teammates to stand in there. It's not easy. Trust me. There's nothing like it. There's no substitute like that crowd roaring in Yankee Stadium or at the Rogers Center. There's just nothing like that feeling. And how do you you replicate that? Very difficult to do.
1: Pat, I don't know about you, but when this thing hits the ground running, uh, for me, Major League Baseball has to do something with pace of play. You know, they're, they're talking about making some adjustments to the shift, but they're also talking about a pitch clock. And when we were talking about having you on, I was thinking, man, he's going to be the perfect guy to ask this. And how big of an adjustment will it be for most big league pitchers to add a pitching clock, say, with a 145-game season?
3: So, two different questions the pitch clock in between pitches and the 145 game season. Which one would you like me to address first? The, the, the 20 pitch count in between, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Matter of fact, most of the guys are used to it now coming up through the minor leagues. But I think what's more important is, is forcing guys to put the ball in play. Like, like, evaluate major league players. Like, I put it this way I think when you strike out 150, 200 times, you should be penalized more on your war. Because if you put the ball in play more, we get more action in play, more balls in play. I'm watching ball games. You're getting 30 punch-outs a night. And it's like, gosh, dang, you know, full-count punch-outs are just boring. You know, and then you're getting 15, 12, 15 strikeouts on each side. It's just not as many balls in play right now. So I think the cent clock will do one, two things. It will force guys to throw more strikes and will force guys to put the ball in play more. So I don't know if it means make the strike zone a little bit bigger to force guys to put it in play. or Because I'm thinking if you made it bigger – Maybe, just maybe, you would force those guys to put the ball and play more. Like the 1980s era. Was that not a great era of baseball to watch? It was fun.
1: It was. Okay, how, how about how about if there's a, a, a smaller spring training? You know, they're talking about, what, what is it, uh, 28 days or whatever it is. What, what if that's 20 days? Is that enough time for a, a starting pitcher who hasn't had to deal with the pitch clock? Is that enough time to get used to it so when they do get it, when the heartbeat's going a little bit faster, when the, when the numbers actually matter, is that a big deal or not?
3: Yeah, this wouldn't be the year I would institute the pitch clock coming out of spring training. An abbreviated spring training delayed. No chance. It would have to be a normal six-week spring training where guys are used to it. I wouldn't want to incorporate that into my pitching staff on April or whenever they do decide to start the season with an abbreviated spring training. That's something you're going to need time to get used to. I think you're going to need a little time to get used to. Maybe not. I don't know. They probably do the numbers. Most guys are probably throwing uh, in between 20 anyway. It may not affect as many guys as you think.
0: Listen, Pat, this was a, a real treat for us. You know how much we value your time and insight. And on a personal level, those sessions with you and Quantrill over breakfast at the Holiday Inn in Dunedin remain some of my favorite <laughs> baseball memories. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for doing this, man, and be well.
3: Yeah, you're the best. Okay, take care. Take care,
0: man. All right, be well. That is Pat Henken, uh joining us on Blair and Barker, the podcast. And, Kevin, uh, interesting hearing Pat talk about in particular, the pitch clock and 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 things of that nature and and because I know we've gone back and forth about pace of play and 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 things in general and i and I think we can all agree i i I'm probably less thrilled with the idea of fiddling around with stuff in the game than you are, like the shift in that, but I think we can all agree that change is coming now the question is, do you change? This year, or do you let everybody kind of take a step back? Let everybody take a deep breath and and bring it in again in, in spring training next year?
1: not me you know you you have you're you have doing it right rich, at the gate absolutely. you have a bunch of rich people arguing over money you know you you've left a bad taste in in fans. Mouth, they give them something to look forward to. Come out mm. loud and say that we're, you know, we're, we're doing whatever. We've we adjusted this to the shift. We're making, having two people stand on each side of second base. We're, we're giving them three shifts a game. Whatever it is, make some adjustment and add the pitch clock. Who cares? They're professional baseball players. Mm. You won't even, you know, after four or five or six outings, you're not even going to have to turn around and look at the pitch clock. You're going to be so used to just getting the ball, getting the sign, throwing it, getting the ball, getting the sign, throwing it, getting the ball, getting the sign, and Throwing it then it's all of a sudden a habit and now you don't have to worry about it anymore for me anyway i'm a fan of the game first you have to do something and i think this has to be done and do it right out the gate i know what pat said but i'm on the other side of it i want something to have to look forward to and i think that would be a nice little thing for fans to look forward to as always you can dm me at
0: sn jeff blair with your questions for kevin barker hopefully we'll be doing this daily very soon but in the meantime check out our social media feed for podcast and show times, and we might have some exciting news for you in the future i'm not going to say any more but stay tuned to social media we may have something for you down the road and you know what that means kevin now that we've reached this point of the show it's time for my favorite part of the show barker's back leg bits
1: lado, kevin baker El but I can't be Baker.
0: We said Barker's bits, not Baker. My goodness, Barker just airmailed that thing. It's time for Barker's back leg bits. Bob Ritchie sends along a question. On a Pittsburgh-based podcast, Bill Madden, formerly of the New York Daily News, stated that Scott Boris blew up the MLB MLBPA deal. How much influence do you think agents, and Boris in particular, had upon the MLBPA's rejection of the latest MLB offer.
1: Yeah, put Bill down for undecided on Scott Boras.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't look. Yeah, I, he, he lit him up, man. He, 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 did. he, he did. He did. That he is don't the like lighting somebody up, man. He really <laughs> it did. It is.
1: It was hilarious. If you haven't heard that, you need to go listen to that. It's pretty funny. Uh, look, I, I we're not in the room. We have no idea what what agents have to do with this thing. I would think the owners have a proposal. This is it. You, you, you want to take it or leave it? I'm, I'm sure that Max Scherzer, uh, you know, Marcus Simeon, Garrett Cole, Zach Britton, who are all, uh, on the executive committee and are, and are all clients or are, are, you know, have Scott Boris as a, as a super agent. I'm sure they've, Picked up the phone and went, "Hey Scott, what do you think about this? This is what the owners just offered us. I'm sure there's conversations back and forth, but do you really think that he is thinking for Max Scherzer, or he's thinking for Marcus, or he's thinking for Garrett? I don't. I'm sure he's giving his opinion, but I'm sure it's up to those guys to make their own decision and, and determine on how they want to go about and, and moving forward. So, long-winded answer. I, I don't. It, it's it's fun to blame." Scott Boris, I think he's an easy guy to blame, but I don't think it's, for me anyway, has anything to do with him.
0: Yeah, you're right, first of all. We're not in the room. And uh, everything I've been told, everything I've been told that when it gets down to you know, to, to, to nut-cutting time, to borrow a John Gibbonsism, uh, when it gets down to nut-cutting time, you've got the two lead negotiators for each side, Bruce, Bruce Meyer and Dan Halem. You've got Tony Clark, you've got Rob Manfred. Yes, you got the owners' committee, and you got the players' committee. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Rob Manfred needs to get three-quarters of his owners. They take an actual vote. And at the end of the day, he needs three-quarters of his owners to sign off on the whole contract. And conversely, same thing with the players. They go through the player reps, people like Ross Stripling, and they solicit reaction from players. Where I think Scott Boris, Kevin might have an impact here is I think in terms of forming the philosophical approach that, uh, that, that, that the players will use when they listen to what the, to what the owners and negotiators are telling him. I think that's where Scott Boris may have may have an impact. In other words, I'm sure Max Scherzer yeah. has has an idea of what he's going to hear from Scott Boris. And you've made this point often. and you're dead on. You are right. One thing we know about Scott Boris, Scott Boris does not act quickly. Scott mm-hmm. Boris loves deadlines. Scott Boris loves the long game. He's quite comfortable playing it. His his clients are comfortable playing it.
1: Yeah, I would, I would almost think that Bruce Meyer and Tony Clark would have a bigger influence on the players than Scott Boris would. Obviously, mm-hmm. Scott Boris is, is the super agent of all agents, and he's going to have his say-so because of who the executive committee is and who those names are and how much money he's made those guys. When he speaks to those guys, they're going to listen. They're going to take it all in, and they're going to take that and go and have conversations with Tony Clark and Bruce Meyer and think, well, okay, what do you, what do you think about this? Should we go forward with this? And we're all going to get together and figure out what mm-hmm. we want to do with everything that's been said. So, uh, <laughs> look, it's gonna- again – it's an, he's an easy target, I will say that.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go on the record right now. If you want to blame somebody on either side for what's going on here, for what has gone on, I think Scott Boris is less your issue. I think it's the small and mid-market owners that are really holding this up. I, yeah. I truly, I think it's that simple. I think it's that simple. I don't think it's Rob Manfred. don't think it's Tony Clark. don't think it's Bruce Meyer. don't think it's Dan Halem. don't think it's Scott Boris. I think it's a group of owners that will not give on the CBT. I, I really think that's where we are right now.
1: Okay, don't forget Rob Manfred either, because you remember they locked them out, what, December 1st. It was 42 days yeah, before know. they actually had a conversation. Why was it 42 days? Yeah.
0: No, uh, hey, listen, ownership, they've controlled the clock in this. There's no doubt about it. Uh, this is a question from Isaac Beliveau. Can Graham Spraker or Josfer Zuleta or both – break camp with the Jays, and be a solid bullpen piece? Or are the Jays eventually going to insulate the bullpen with some proven arms? Kevin, I'll turn it over to you.
1: Yeah, they're, they're in win mode. I, I do not see either one of these guys making a team out of spring training. I mean, things would have to happen where they just, Ross Atkins can't go out and make a, a veteran move and get an arm in there and establish an arm before these guys. Spreaker, look, he's an interesting piece because he's been in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, he's not a hybrid guy anymore. Hybrid also a real the-
0: 5 candidate.
1: Absolutely. Well, that hybrid guy for me, he actually has a role now. You know, he was starting for a little while. He'd come out of the bullpen for a little while and they were mixing, matching. Velocity wasn't there. Break on uh, his breaking stuff wasn't there. They put him in the Arizona fall league. They put him in the bullpen. He's throwing harder now. Stuff's breaking more. He's getting more swing and miss. He's a lot closer than Zuleta mm-hmm. is for me, just because Zuleta, right? He's pitched to Cuba. He's pitched to older guys, which is a plus for him. So that's not going to intimidate him. You got 2019. He had Tommy John. Uh, You had last year, 2021, where he had the knee problem. He missed some games there. For me, Zuleta just hasn't had enough time. Stuff-wise, everybody you talk to, he may have the best stuff. He may have the best stuff in their minor league system. But just when it comes to experience and they're in win mode now, I would say right now, Zuleta is a little bit further back than Spreaker.
0: Yeah, I think I think Spraker's a guy that's got a real chance to break with the team. Uh, really? I, look, I I think he. I mean, I, I think he does. Now, I haven't seen the guy, but I'm talking about based on what folks said out of the Arizona Fall League. He was the reliever of the year in the Arizona Fall League, uh, and and the longer this goes on, I, I wonder if at some point teams just run out of time when it comes to doing what they have to do. If you're the Blue Jays, you, look, we've talked about this. You got to get Oof. you got to get another at least another bat in the lineup. You got to add some balance to your lineup. You really don't have an opening day third baseman or second baseman right now. You got a lot of stuff to do. I know you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I get all that, but I got to think at some point when camp starts, you're just going to say, you know what, maybe we're not Oof. maybe we're not going to be able to do everything we need to do in the trade or free agent market and keep in mind while all this is going on, Graham Spreaker, right now, he's got the full attention of, Paul, of, of, of Pete Walker. Of Pete Walker, the full attention of Charlie. He's got the full attention of, of the major league staff. Yeah. This is, I'll tell you, this is a guy that can make hay right now. This yeah, is a guy maybe, that can
1: make hay. Maybe you'd have to ask yourself first and foremost, when would you use him? You know, you know if, if this season turns into closer to a sprint than a marathon, you know, I'm not saying they're going to miss a ton of games and they're only going to play 100 games, but if this thing runs out to, say, 140 game season, now you're starting to talk. If you start the season, say, 2 and 12 in the American League East, you're almost, it, it's going to be real tough to, to, Kevin, to, this come, is to be, come back from that. So you just got to be careful. This is going to be a guy ready to go, though. This, my, my
0: point is, this This is a guy who's ready to go out of the gate. You don't have to worry. He's going to have a full spring
1: training. If you're comfortable giving him the ball in the sixth inning with a runner on second base with two outs, I say put him in there. If the answer to that question is no, then for me, you've got to send him to AAA and let him have some more time.
0: Well, there you go, another Blair and Barker podcast in the books. As always, we ask you to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast. And as always... We'll end the podcast with these few final words. Be safe, stay well, and for God's sake, Rob, Dan, Tony, Bruce, whoever, get the damn thing finished. I don't have time for this BS. Barker doesn't have time for this BS, and your fans sure as hell don't either.